This is Chip in Durham. Erica in Edmonton. And Shannon in Durham. And welcome to episode I've forgotten what number it is. I guess <laughs> 61. We'll... Thank you. <laughs> of the audio guide to Babylon 5, War Without End, parts one and two. Okay, so here's the thing. We did a two-parter once upon a time on the Audio Guide to Babylon 5. You might remember it, A Voice in the Wilderness. And we did it all in one go because it just sort of made sense. It was one story. Uh, So should be no problem for us to tackle War Without End uh, Parts 1 and 2 in one go as well, right? (laughs) Holy cow, what a big story! (laughs) Uh, so to help us with the heavy lifting, we have reached back in time. We've gone back two years and we have plucked Liz Miles from our Babylon Squared podcast and we are bringing her forward in time to War Without End. Hi, Liz. Hello. I really (laughs) wish I was two years younger. That'd be great. (laughs) That would be great. (laughs) So say we all. So say we all. Oh, goodness. War Without End. Um... I would like to begin with in a in a sort of an odd place because Erica, when you first encountered Babylon Five, you jumped in pretty much in the middle of this season, and mm-hmm. you pretty much had no idea who Sinclair was. Nope. This episode must have broken your brain a bit at the time. It did a little bit. I mean, I didn't know. I didn't feel as strongly about it as like somebody like Steven did having watched all of Sinclair first, but the, but these few episodes that I had come in seeing the name Valen is thrown around an awful lot. Like, you know, the Minbari say in Valen's name, like that's, that is the thing that came up. So it was enough for me to recognize that, that Valen was a quote unquote, you know, big deal. And so so finding out that some person, whoever this is from their time, uh, was the person who went back and, and became that was still it was still mind blowing. And it still had the effect that I think it was supposed to and I still enjoyed it a lot. It just it's it's an even bigger deal now watching it with what I know. Uh, Liz, tell me about your feels about war without end. Um, I've got a huge amount of affection for it, not just because I think it's awesome television and some of Babylon 5's very best episodes but because this is the story the, the two-parter that got my mum to watch the series um I can't remember the circumstances exactly but for some reason she sat down with me when I was just starting episode one and you know she didn't intend to watch it but she got sucked in she got sucked in by the feeling of the massive epicness and the mysticism and the fact that there were people who looked a bit like rangers um from Oh, from Lord of the Rings as well, and I think Marcus Marcus really helped too. And um, and yeah, so after that, she was like, "I want to watch the whole thing." And luckily, I happened to have almost all of it by that point on VHS. And she was she was I was quite when was this? I'd have been in my mid mid teens at the time, but she was she was quite happy from that point to foot the bill on the gaps in my Babylon Five collection. <laughs> so that was very handy. <laughs> Um, yeah, so bizarre jumping on point, but it has the themes, I think, and the resonance for someone like if you're a general science fiction fantasy telly fan like my mum is, then it's it really just grabs you and what makes you want to, to you want answers to all the questions that you mm-hmm. get if you just watch this as a movie. 
Wow. And, and you know, one of the strengths, I think, about War Without End, and Shannon, feel free to jump in, I mm-hmm. think one of the strengths is it isn't just about answering the questions of Babylon Squared. It actually sets up some new questions as well. Exactly. Yeah, the, the fact that, yes, this closes the loop that was begun in Babylon Squared, and that part of the story is taken care of, but then you've got Sheridan's jump into the future and Delenn's vision, and there's just still so much more to figure out. Mm-hmm. I think, yeah, I, I just got to say, yes, this is such perfect placement, and it's in the middle of Babylon 5 series, and it is such a satisfying job, and it works so well for here it is, because you get those big answers, but then you get equally big questions set up. It's, it's just a, a beautiful little piece of in the middle of the tapestry. And, you know, like metaphorically playing on, this is the middle of the story, people. Like we've mm-hmm. just told you what these characters are. Yeah, and and you know, zipping all the way to practically the end of the two the two parter when uh, Zathras uh, talks to our our three heroes and says, "You are the beginning of the story. You are the middle of the story. You are the end of the story." Chills. I I honestly get chills. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, it I makes it makes it makes all three characters seem more important. And I mean, a character is saying you're important. That's maybe not the best way in script writing to uh, deliver important, to, to, to portray importance of a character. But Sinclair, we haven't seen Sinclair except for a brief bit on a video screen um, since the first season. And he is literally the beginning of the story. Um, that's mm-hmm. a very meta statement. But to take that and then to look and then to look at Delenn, who sort of drove this episode and told told the characters where they needed to go and what they needed to do, and then to look past her to Sheridan, who has been he, he's clearly developing as a character. He's clearly developing into something. And for the character Zathras to say Zathras to say, "You are the end of the story. You're the the one who will be." I think that this is a really powerful episode. I think it has some pl- some flaws, but I-, I think there are better episodes of uh, Babylon 5, Severed Dreams, anybody? Maybe. <laughs> uh, but the scope of Babylon 5 is just so manifestly clear. So it may, be, it may, it may have its flaws, but I love it to bits. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think I should probably do our ritual uh, What You Need to Know. And uh, and are uh, in this episode summary. So, what you need to know: go watch Babylon Squared. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, in this episode, look, it's it's too much. I can't even sum up. We're not even bothering. Let's just dive in. <laughs> You're here. <laughs> We'll go back to our regular format next time, everybody. But this is just this is just too complicated. It's a it's a massively complicated episode. And the first question I wanted to ask everybody is: is this a fe- is that a feature or a bug? How's this feel as just television? I mean, uh, it apparently sold your mom, Liz. Um, yeah. Is is your mom an aberration in that regard, or is this really really good television, despite all of the exposition and all the complication? I'm going to go for this as top quality television. This is this is this and the message from our Sever Dreams trilogy in, in season three. Those are the those are the big five Babylon five episodes for for me that that sort of exemplify everything that is great and wonderful about the series as a whole. And those are the two high points. 
And um, I think that, uh, I, I think certainly for today's audience, I don't think they're going to have any, tr- they wouldn't have any trouble with this. And for the 90s, it must have felt so good to have television that asked you to think along with it, that asked you to, asked you to, have something complicated to mull over to for having big themes and big plot developments and for them to be complicated and for there to be a payoff that you've waited over a, certainly at least a year for uh, or a year and a half rather and it's oh I, I I don't know I think I think anyone who's sort of at least a little fan-ish about any sort of science fiction will just dive into it and find it so appealing I don't yeah. I don't think that's I don't think that's going to be something that's put off that will put off the people that the show is aimed at. Mm-hmm. I I think that yeah, if especially if we're talking about the subsection of TV watchers who enjoy science fiction, this is catnip. I mean, mm. <laughs> watching it with Stephen, he he kept compl- kind of comparing it to to other things but they were things that were good and things that he liked so i mean he said it it very much has a back to the future sort of a vibe the the time travel style of it mm-hmm. and he was really surprised that you know that, that babylon 5 a tackled time travel i mean even though he knew that that was a thing in babylon squared he didn't i don't think he expected it to be this intricate of a time travel story and this well crafted and constructed uh, he was very impressed by that uh, he also compared it to he said this is like a b5 generations it's neat because you got the old captain and the new captain coming together (laughs) and you know he was just just really enjoying enjoying all of that it was it was satisfying on a level that that for somebody watching the show from the beginning um, would really appreciate all of these different plot threads sort of coming together and tying in a nice little bow and then oh look coming off of the bow is another few threads you know going off into the future Uh, but even I think for somebody who like Liz's mom was not overly familiar with this show the characters are all very well very well defined and and shown showcased i guess in this so you don't necessarily have to know who marcus is coming in he's acting like marcus and all of these characters are interacting with each other in ways that highlight who they are and who they mean to each other and yeah, there was some exposition, but I didn't find it onerous and I didn't find it clunky for the most part. And I think that whenever you get a complicated story like this that twists around in time and goes back and forth and stuff, I, I'm always fine with a little bit of extra exposition spackle in between the big scenes because it makes it easier to follow. And, and you know, it's sure you can say, oh, it's, it's artsier if you don't give all that explanation. Yeah, but then... <laughs> then it becomes less easy to follow. So with one exception, uh, Stephen just, just loved this, and, and I'm, I am right there with him. Well, it does, me, it, it does me really good. It makes me feel really good. I know that uh, Stephen has had issues in the past with certain amounts of ambiguity, of Vorlonishness of mm-hmm. um, in, in, in this story. Uh, I know that Stephen, like many of us, are big Doctor Who fan, is a big Doctor Who fan, and mm-hmm. I was, and I want to psychoanalyze your husband for a second, <laughs> if I oh, may. Oh dear! No, um, good luck. Uh, New section of the podcast. <laughs> uh, Doctor Who is a show that always featured time travel, but only as a means to getting from one setting to another. There were a couple of episodes that actually played with time, but it really wasn't until Stephen Moffat got into the game where time travel became a feature that was explored wibbly wobbly timey wimey and all this stuff and i kind of wondered if 
the wibbly-wobbly, timey-wiminess of uh, this episode would appeal to Stephen, uh, separated from the, you know, the, the many years of affection that he had for Doctor Who, you know? Mm-hmm. No, I think it I think it really worked. I mean, the episode finished and he was just like, that was some good back writing there, JMS. That was good <laughs> and epic. Like those were his words. He used the word epic. And I completely I agree. He, and he said that that also this was a very satisfying conclusion to the Sinclair storyline. If indeed this is his last appearance, he's like, don't tell me I don't want to know. Uh, so I think he felt like like all of the the time travel stuff was a, a a good way to sort of wrap things up for for this character. Yeah, yeah, I'm glad to hear that because I, I I was thinking a lot about Stephen rewatching this episode precisely because um, Doctor Who is his jam, and these mm-hmm. days Doctor Who is all wibbly wobbly timey wimey, and uh, JMS worked like the devil. He talks in the Lurker's Guide about just how hard it was to write this episode and catch everything, you know, basically make sure that all of the things that are meant to be tied up get tied up. Yes, there's more stuff to do. He lays seeds for things that are going to happen later on. Um, but yeah, I was thinking a lot about that. Uh, and like you, Erica, I yes, there may have been a lot of exposition, but I never felt that the story dragged at any mm-hmm. point. Um, even if details were being shared, um, the character interactions were still there. And that was, like you all said, having all these characters together, it occurred to me watching this time around that it felt a little bit like as the team comes together kind of thing. It's just like, here's Sinclair back, and then here's Zathras back, and then it's, you know, getting everybody onto the White Star that they want on there, except poor Garibaldi. And um, just the the feel of coming together, I really noticed it this time around, and that is a thing I love about when television, when they write it and everybody comes together and gets the thing done. Here, here. Yeah, mm-hmm. especially when, you know, the generations thing with the old team and mm-hmm. the new team. And, you know, the, but it's not that about- old, you know, it's only a couple of years. <laughs> but that's that feels like forever in TV time. You know, we've we've been watching it in two years in real time. And Stephen can barely remember what happened in Babylon Squared. So, you know, it, it's definitely the old days. And, and, and that is true. Um, after Sheridan disappears from the bridge of the White Star and Sinclair takes command. And Sinclair dramatically sits down in the uh, command chair on the White Spar. And, and mind you, Sinclair never had a command chair to sit in, and, be, and he mm-hmm. never had a ship, you know, but he, it feels right. It feels like the character has come home, and we've talked a lot uh, during our during our year of Sinclair checks. We've talked a lot <laughs> about uh, my affection for the character, and it felt really good to see Sinclair back. It felt bittersweet to see where he went um mm-hmm. because i remember when i was when when all of the buzz was coming for uh, back in the 90s for this episode and it was no secret that uh michael o'hare would be back and that this would be the flip side of babylon squared i was literally at the edge of my seat you know wanting to see sinclair become a recurring character and mm-hmm. Um, at the end of this episode, it, for all intents and purposes, appears that Sinclair is never coming back and is going to be 900 years in, in the – he's going to write, be writing letters from 900 years in the past, et cetera, and so on. Oh, and he's got a bone. 
Um, yeah. Setting up a religion, no big deal. Setting up a religion, no big deal. So this this was this was a big deal for me. This was a big deal for me. Um, um, like I've said before, I I I, I resemble I resemble Michael O'Hare in some respects. I've even got the scar in the middle of my forehead. I, I identify with the character a lot. So it was good to see it was good to see him again. Um, I asked uh, I asked Shannon to specifically look at one thing and the rest of you could should feel free to chime in of course because this is so complicated because there is so much exposition packed into part one the action really really starts happening in part two except for the fight with the shadow fighters is part one satisfying as uh, 45 minutes of television on its own or do you really need to watch both of them in one go uh to be to be satisfied or did it really whet the appetite for the following episode in a way that say doctor who the end of time part one did not (laughs) (laughs) yeah i would i would say that um jms did a pretty good job with his balancing act um yes part one is essentially a very long assembling the troops section uh there's a ton of setup but i think two things in particular really pull it together the number one as i mentioned before the character interplay that you've got you know characters that maybe haven't talked much or maybe haven't talked at all you know getting together and interacting with one another and that's fun to watch um and then jms took care to take care of at least one half of the task um they do stop the fusion bomb and they do stop the shadows from bombing babylon 4 so that was one half of their task the other half is to drag the whole ship you know, get it going through time. Um, And then he did something clever, I think, in introducing with Sheridan getting flung into the future, new questions. So I have no problem believing, I'm trying to remember, Chip, if we wound up seeing this two separate weeks the first time around, I think maybe by then. I'm pretty sure we did, yeah. Yeah, that we were watching. So even though the actual end of part one isn't technically a cliffhanger, you know, there's, it's more like a pause but uh, in the action, but I was I was ready to see the rest. I wanted to know what happened. Yeah, and even though we had that last shot, th- th- that last shot is uh, Sinclair and Delin, uh, you know, going to work with a great line of "Why do you always say Why do you always say ready when you're about to do something massively reckless?" Um, the cliffhanger actually happened a few minutes before when we saw mm-hmm. Sheridan in the future. Don't you think? Right. Hmm. Hmm. I think that, yeah. that that's the one thing that I would I would say is the the, the one flaw in part part one for me was certainly watching because it's been a, it's been a few years since I've I've seen War Without End and it's always tricky for me working from the perspective of someone who doesn't have who doesn't know what's going on because I've you know I watched Babylon Five backwards and in very weird bits and um, but it, d- it definitely does feel like that moment where he's in Londo's palace that should be the moment where you get the cliffhanger because that would have been amazing um and but it's four minutes it's not it's a minor flaw i think really in the grand scale of things um in in what's otherwise pretty awesome yeah babylon five is not a show that really does cliffhangers all the time and (laughs) and i think it kind of shows yeah uh, because yeah even in you know voice in the wilderness there wasn't much of a cliffhanger there either there's something coming through the jump gate (laughs) yeah fade to black actually I feel like I that worked better than this. <laughs> yeah, even. I didn't mind that one so much because that reminded me quite of, of the Doctor Who, the classic part one episode cliffhanger of, look, over there. Yep. 
<laughs> yes, which is why I like that one better than this. This just really was just it. It stopped, and, uh, and Stephen was just like it. It just sort of ended. It ended with a laugh. Like he was, he was a little bit confused. Um, and we we did watch this two different nights. Stephen doesn't like marathoning television, and because it was a two parter, he really wanted to get the feel and the flavor of the two parter. So we watched one one night, and then part two on um, the second night to to really get that feeling. And I I agree that I I don't think that the first episode stands by itself because like you know right. some of it's wrapped up but not enough. So I but I do think that it was a good solid enough piece of television that it absolutely made me want to come back and watch the rest of it. I mean, I'm I'm glad that we put a night in between it so that we didn't watch it all at once. But I I don't think I would have wanted to go too much longer than that unless I absolutely had to like if I was, you know, back in the day when I was watching it week by week. Yeah. And I'm just I'm just nodding away here in agreement. I also think part one had its own sort of selection of if you're doing like a maybe top 30 Babylon 5 moments, there's quite a lot of of um, choices you might you might want to pick out of the, this episode. I think that Ivanova's, the, the recording of Ivanova from the future, I remember finding that so unsettling when I saw it the first time. Mm-hmm. And it really, really, that that was, that freaked me out. That frightened me as, as a, as, you know, I, I felt that was, it was maybe a little too realistic for me at the time. I was a, I was an easily scared teenager, um, and uh, <laughs> and I, I kind of I loved the contrast we got between seeing that and then moving to present Ivanova and seeing how cool and calm and composed she was, and the difference between those two just really sort of oh highlighted the creepiness of the of, of the possible future. And, and I think the other great moment was was obviously the the Sinclair reveal at the start. I mean, how cool mm-hmm. was of that being the first time you got to see that. And yeah. okay, you you probably have known it was going to happen if you were following the show at all. But luckily, you know, it still played epic. Luckily, Stephen has not been reading along with the Lurker's Guide and stuff, so he is not even aware of the things that people just you know at, at the time would have been aware of. So he hadn't heard any of that kind of scuttlebutt. So for him, it was mm-hmm. absolutely the the shock that it that it was supposed to be in some way. And I think that you know structurally talking about yeah maybe the cliffhanger wasn't great, but a couple of things that I think they did get right and really mm. nail was the the cold open of of the mm. first episode because you know first of all we're on Minbar and I don't know yeah. if we have seen Minbar this before. Is the, I think this is the first time we've been to okay. Minbar. Because that's what Steven said. He's like, whoa, we haven't been here before, have we? And I was like, I don't remember. Um, and then and then suddenly, you know, here we have Sinclair. And Steven just, he he just said, <laughs> whoa, fudge. He didn't say fudge. <laughs> um, what's he doing? And and then he was like, okay, so Marty McFly sent a letter back to, so he's, you know, going with the Back to the Future thing right away. And then um, and then you get the rest of the pre-credit sequence, which, sequence, which is also like just, you know, in, intense. And, and he just, Stephen was just like, there is a pre-credit sequence there. You know, it's, he, and he was excited that we got to go back to Sinclair watch with me again. <laughs> so, I mean, he was just very, very impressed by that. And I think that it's balanced very well at the beginning of part two, because you don't get the same kind of cold open thing exactly, but you do get a previously on or like, you know, last time on Babylon 5, which that is sometimes a tough thing to do. Uh, And I'm always really impressed by shows who do a good job of picking and choosing the important moments. Uh, I think, Mm -hmm. you know, like Game of Thrones is really, really good at that. And and I think that this was uh, an excellent 
mix of, of these are the scenes that, that are important and have emotional resonance resonance and that you know you kind of you need to remind you of, of what was happening and put you back not only in in the place of the plot itself but in the place of what you were feeling when you were watching that previous episode and you know I, I probably lay a lot of the credit at Mike Vehar's feet because of course he directed mm-hmm. these which that was a surprise to Stephen there was no fancy camera work in the cold <laughs> open so when his name jumped up Stephen was just like whoa I did not expect that uh, ah. but then later there were enough things that he was like you know a, a scene would happen and it would be really good and Stephen would just go they are yeah. <laughs> you know yeah. there are and the other thing I liked about um the opening of part two that yes the the that previously seen stuff was well selected but I liked that they also just went ahead and continued the story before the credits so they got you going again mm-hmm. uh, before the interruption of the credits and then getting back into the story I had not remembered that they did that yeah um, speaking of Mike Vehar I think that this is possibly the least Veharian episode yep. of um, his of his run so far. There are some good, good creative bits, uh, such as um, I love the scenes in Londo's throne room when he is retreated into shadows and he is pointing at uh, old Sheridan and old Delin, and all you see are his arms just coming out of the shadows, pointing mm-hmm. at them. That is just fantastic. But for the most part, I think Mike Vehar had his work cut out for him, just trying to match what Janet Greek did with Babylon Squared, two different directors. And mm-hmm. he managed to make these two, they managed to, he managed to make this feel kind of like the old episode. And they, that makes sense. That Because as I was watching, um, things that I was noticing that seemed to me like things that Mike Vehar does, I think mostly were confined to Sheridan's future, where Vehar had more of a free hand, like the shot from above in Sheridan's cell, when Delenn is thrown in, and there's several shots like that, things like that. That's when directorial things made me think that the, you know that this might be Vehar touches. So when he when he had the room to maneuver, I think it it shows more. They did different cinematography in the first season than they did in later seasons. Um, they uh, used uh, I I can't remember if it's wider f-stops or narrower f-stops but they they let more light into the camera so that they could do more with shadows and things like that the show looks different in the first season than everything else so uh he 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 must have uh he must have had all the advil (laughs) yeah and another thing too that that steven that steven has pointed out um in previous Mike Vehar episodes is usually they are not monumental, you know, tentpole episodes like these are. So, you know, his direction acts to sort of elevate those somewhat, I don't want to say lesser stories, but the stories that have maybe less of a, a kick, less of a punch to them. Whereas this, the story itself really is the focus. And, you know, he doesn't need to add the extra frosting because this this is the cake that is the, the primo, primo cake. Um, but even, and, and I love your point about him sort of trying to match things with the way Babylon Squared was directed in Janet Greek. And I think that that's, uh, he did a wonderful job dovetailing. But you can still from time to time see hints of, of the Mike Vaharness, for example, um, there's the one shot where I think 
think it's when they're on the White Star and the camera moves from Sheridan and it pans over to Delenn where they're holding mm-hmm. hands and you get this nice close up on their hands holding each other and then there's a rack focus to Sinclair in the background and then yeah. big props to Michael O'Hare for his like his little half smile reaction there. He like, ships seeing them. That, oh my God. Yeah, that was, <laughs> I mean, he, I'm, I'm still not a huge Sinclair fan, but that moment really did an awful lot to to lift him up in my eyes and then that was that was one of the moments where Stephen just goes they are <laughs> when we're talking about how monumental an episode is you're you've got to be talking about the writing you're you're talking about the plot and mm-hmm. uh the developments how well written is war without end uh liz got any thoughts so good so very good i'm so just immensely impressed with it especially just looking at it in this case and you know isolation usually when i watch 12 and 5 i look you know i watch a good chunk of episodes or have them on the background or something but just concentrating on these two episodes and just enjoying them for what they are and being swept along in the delightful story and not feeling like anything was really weighing it down everything had a purpose and yet it was still as as i think um, everyone was saying earlier it still managed to convey both plot and character everyone who's here in the ensemble cast they all get their little moment. They all have a moment to shine. It's it's marvelously done, and um, and I think um, <laughs> one of one of my big criticisms of Babylon Five is there is an awful lot of clunky writing, or especially clunky dialogue. But there's nothing here that there's there's some bits that I go really at, but there's nothing that annoys me in a way that does tend to happen in some episodes with GMS's dialogue skills. I really feel that there is there is so much polish and so much work and so much care gone into every line here to get it all to work together. That, um, yeah, no, the writing, the writing is superb. Marvellous. Well done, JMS. Thank you. I'll be in the car. That's an all-time great. I love it so much. That's an all-time great Ivanova line. Oh, uh, the the yeah. stuff. And even if there are annoying things, you just have to wait a minute, and Zathras will be back. Well, <laughs> yeah. um, I, res- I I know that Zathras is a very popular character, and I can I can completely understand why it is not the type of character that I enjoy. <laughs> but, I un- but I understand why he is enjoyable, and I think there is much good dialogue, and it's well played, and all that stuff. It's just it's just not for me. Yeah, Stephen. Stephen was like, fair. "Oh, not this guy again." <laughs> I think I, I forgot to I forgot to specifically ask him about Zathras at the end of the episode to see if he had won him over. But the only complaint that he made was that very first one when he just noticed who it was. So I suspect that he did not grate on Stephen as much as he did in Babylon Squared. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, going, back going, going back to Liz's going back to Liz's stuff about the um, about the dialogue. Uh, the things that one of the things that I noticed was uh, when when Sinclair tells uh, Sheridan he thinks that they'd work well together, and he goes through the list of uh, uh, famous duos, and he says Lucy and Ethel. You know that <laughs> the, the 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 delivery of that falls a little flat for me, but it's rescued when um, when Sheridan glances back at him and says Lucy and Ethel, and then yeah. and then resumes his conversation with Garibaldi. Um, mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, gen- generally speaking, I think it's a well-written episode, but oh my God, the work that had to be done, the work that had to be done to create, um, to create, to create the bookend for an episode that was shot two years ago and before on a series for which 
the lead character had left the show. And you have to bring that lead that lead character back, and you have to do the bookend. That I I I feel I I feel the effort in the writing at a few points, and I don't know if that's just me being a little unfair because I know some backstory that uh, people who are new to the show don't know. But um, this, I suspect that's the case. Yeah, it's 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 a very hard. It, 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 this was a really hard job for JMS and Mike Vehar. Very hard. And it's astonishing that they pulled it off so well. Mm-hmm. I, I think the one moment for me where I'm like, you've just kind of... The, the one sort of awkward jigsaw fit, as it were, for me is is uh, is in the second part where um, Sinclair says, tries to warn Garibaldi, watch your back, Michael. And it's mm-hmm. like... Mm, that's not convincing. I mean, I get that you had to do something there to or to fit with the dialogue, but that was just that was the one moment for me that doesn't that doesn't quite work. The rest of it, I find, I oh, it was it was great watching those scenes again where you've got the the two episodes intersecting properly, and you're like, wow. yeah. So cool. Stephen was Stephen was wild by that. He was like oh, archive footage. <laughs> he was. <laughs> yep. Oh man. Oh, well. Uh... Erica, you opened the door a little while ago. Let's walk through it. It's time for, after a, after more than a year, it's time for a Sinclair check. <laughs> um, you know, I have to say that I feel like his sort of slightly wooden mean works better on, on Minbar and like as an ambassador to, to Minbar. So he's been surrounded by these these sort of slightly slightly stiff and standoffish cultural, you know, norms for all of this time. So the the things that kind of bothered me about his performance actually fit better with the way the place that his character is now. So I found that I actually didn't have as much of a problem as I did. He was very blinky, especially in part one. And I don't know if that had anything to do with the uh, the illnesses that he was he was dealing with at the time, but I just that w- I found that very distracting because maybe you know his context didn't quite fit, and you're like maybe that, that future, future looked contacts like that. could be future contacts could be like slightly irritating on your eyeballs. <laughs> those those damn yeah. Minbari contacts. It's, <laughs> yes, it, it, it's a great opportunity for some quality head cannon. There you go. Yeah. Um, so I fa- because you know how I feel about the the wide eyed acting, and he didn't he didn't do very much of that. So I, I was I was glad about that. Um, so so for the most part, I liked that. I really did like the the sort of take charge moments where he just sort of slid into that role of command. It felt very natural, and and Stephen quite quite enjoyed that too. And and yeah, I mean, I think he did a nice job playing under old age makeup, which is not always a fun, comfortable thing to do. And and I just I, I think that if he had continued on into season two, I, I probably would not have enjoyed that all that much just because uh, the, the things that bothered me about his performance were still there. But f- slotting him in in this particular way and, and sending him back in time to become this amazing, amazing character, that really that really did work for me. And I love his costume. I feel like he he wore those robes really, really well. Uh, so so yeah, I, I actually give a thumbs up to to this Sinclair performance. I, I, I like Sinclair as Valen quite a bit. And it was very nice too, as soon as the episode was done, I mean, Steven just sat there, like, kind of gobsmacked, like, mouth open. He's like, so, 
Sinclair becomes Balin. Like the, he's he's Balin. And I was like, uh huh. And then I explained to Stephen that, uh, which I can let all of our listeners in now that. If you are listening for the first time and and not listening to our spoiler sections, our our joke throughout a good deal of the first season and even <laughs> later later on into is as soon as we get out of the jump gate, you know we're all tense from trying to keep the spoilers inside. And and once we got through the jump gate and we're able to relax, somebody and it was different pretty much every time. Somebody would immediately shout Sinclair is Valen just just to just to let it just to let it go just to let it out. So now we can actually say that on the show proper, like That's at the right. beginning. That's Indeed. right. And something else that I think works and enhances um, O'Hare's performance is there's always that sense, that feeling all the way through both parts that Sinclair knows what's coming. He has been given the letter. He has been given his instructions. He knows that they have this job to do to get the spaceship going back in time. And he knows he's going back with it. And he knows that he is going to become the equivalent of Jesus for the Mimbari. Um and I think that in, that enhances a lot of um, how he reacts, how he shades to the other people. And it's a reason for him to be so serious at times when um, when there's nothing else going on. Yeah, and he even gets to say he gets to be the one to say previously on Babylon 5, which Stephen got a thrill out of that, too. <laughs> oh. No, it really feels that he's. It might just be the. I know part of it's part just the way he acts. Possibly, I haven't actually seen him in anything else. Um, but he really, you feel Sinclair. This is a man who has accepted his destiny, and the, you really feel the weight of that around him. It adds the whole mythic feel of the story, and it really. I, I do think is this is definitely one of his 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 good, really good performances. I think I've never I've never disliked. Sinclair particularly. I have friends who mock me for lacking the Sinclair hate. Um, <laughs> but here, I, I really enjoyed the fact that we got to see, as, when she, as soon as Sheridan disappeared, the sliding into the command role again. It was like, oh, look at you. You know what you're doing. You're acting away here. It's great. I, you know, I, I, like it when, <laughs> I like it when I can actually tell what actors do. <laughs> well, and and there may be some there may be some behind the scenes reasons for that too, um, as we've mm. discussed in more detail, I think in spoil in the spoiler section. But Michael O'Hare, as revealed by JMS at a recent con after uh, Michael O'Hare passed away, Michael O'Hare had mental illness, serious mental illness, and, schizophrenia. Yeah, yeah, and he barely yeah. made it. He barely made it through uh, the first season. He was unwilling to risk the show being canceled or mothballed for him to get treatment so uh supposedly jms and jms's wife at the time and michael o'hare were the only ones who really knew what o'hare was going through and in the interim um he did receive treatment and he was doing better and he i i think coming back to coming back to the stage um must have been uh, enormously validating for him for him to be able to be a part of the show again. Yeah, uh, yeah I'm sorry. I, you I mean, I, I, go ahead. Sorry. I just to see that. I mean, when I found that out, I was really, wow, that is amazing what he's managed to do. I have, I have family with uh, schizophrenia, and it is a bizarre and devastating illness. And uh, to know that he was going through that and wasn't getting the right treatment for it and was still able and willing to keep going 
it's it's amazing. So uh, at the at lunch during the filming, um, JMS and uh, Bruce Boxleitner and Michael O'Hare are at a table, and Boxleitner says to JMS, "Explain to me something. How come he?" gets to go off and become the next best, the next thing to God. And I just get the crap beat out of me in this episode. And, and, J- <laughs> and JMS responds, seniority. <laughs> well, uh, we've been talking about the old guy a lot, but let's talk about the one who will be. Uh, how, how about how about this one for a Sheridan episode? Considering that he has to share the limelight for so much of the story, it's still a strong episode for him. I agree. I think it's even as he's flung into the future and he's he's still thinking. I mean, he still shows that, you know, he's trying to figure things out. He's trying to understand what's going on. He's strategizing a bit, trying to figure out um, how this situation could be salvaged. But, you know, given that his role is smaller because of the fact that everybody else is in it too. um, I think, yeah, I think Box Leitner does a, continues to do a good job portraying Sheridan. And he and Delenn get their first kiss and it's 17 years from now. (laughs) Yes. His first, not hers, apparently. Oh, mm-hmm. uh, that was funny. That was also annoying because that, that is definitely one thing that I read about before we actually saw it on screen. Oh, <laughs> like, oh, no, well, that's that's how I, I got to that one. <laughs> <Honestly>. <laughs> no, I, I think the there's, there's a decent chemistry between the two of them as well. It almost makes it a shame that this is the only time we're getting to see them interacting because you do get a very good sense of how different the characters are and what their sort of responses are to different situations. And, and even there was, there was such, I know it's such a small thing, but I really appreciated that got it in there that um, where Ivanova's say something like, damn it, Jeff. And you're like, just in that moment, you encapsulate the difference between her and Sinclair's relationship and her and Sheridan's relationship. And, uh, and yeah, it just, oh, it just makes me sad that it wasn't a three or four or five parter or something other, something else that's utterly <laughs> impractical, because I, I did enjoy the character stuff we got quite a lot. It was marvellous. Liz, you can never be satisfied. <laughs> <sighs> what can I say? I just, I just don't understand why people don't spend millions of pounds and all their time making television exactly to my pandering like we said, the story isn't just about sewing up the arc. What looks like the fall of Centauri Prime, we have old Londo, we have... We have his dream come true. We, we've had, we have his dream come true, and it is not exactly how we thought his dream was going to be, is it? No. Mm-hmm. Well, it's hard to tell, really. We still, you know, we got to see slightly more context around it, but not... Not enough to really tell us exactly what's going on, which I think is delightful. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. And yeah. wow, that keeper thing—that was <laughs> that that one shot we get with the eye opening. That was yeah, super, Stephen. Super Stephen decided creepy. to call those uh, a slurm brain slugs. Um, <laughs> no, don't don't take the scariness away. That, that's Futurama. <laughs> Damn you, Stephen. <laughs> 
Uh, but yeah, that was that was quite a sort of quite a head trip too. And and I was actually very pleased that that Stephen remembered that we had seen the uh, the the scene with Jakar and and Londo before because you know watching it so slowly sometimes he forgets stuff like that. And he remembered. He's like, wait, we've seen that before, right? And with Jakar with the eye patch and and you know he's like, oh yeah, well now you know so now he knows about the the brain slugs, but uh, but still doesn't know quite why everything is is happening the way that it does which I, I think he enjoyed that i would like to know if in the shooting schedule andreas katsalas had to go through all his hours of makeup just for those 30 seconds of screen time oh, well, and oh, veer oh. too that crossed my mind you know that apparently the only reason they needed mm. Stephen first on set was to come in and and pick up the emperor's uh sigil yeah <laughs> Yeah. So uh, now I guess we know uh, one of you will be emperor after the other is dead. I think we know how that prophecy is going to turn out, don't you? Looks like it. Yes, this is why you should never doubt prophecies. Well. (laughs) They're all true. Except when they're not. Uh, Remember when uh, Lady Morella, um, no, was it Lady Morella? No, that's that's Major Barrett's character. Yeah. Lord Rifa's aunt, or no, not oh, you know who I'm talking about. Way back, yes. way back in Signs and Portents, yes. Uh, when she, uh, when she read Sinclair's future, and he saw the destruction of Babylon Five, and it turns out that was a possible future, not the, not the actual future, because yeah, but she was still right. It was still going to happen. They just had, they hadn't done the thing to fix it yet. So technically, technically, totally true. Yeah. Which 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 brings me to I think my own, my main my main criticism of this uh, episode, um, and I'm sorry, Liz, but it's just it, in the grand scheme, it's just a small one. No, no, I I, I love your criticisms because <laughs> when I listen, it's they're generally my criticisms too. Well, like, yeah. the the uh, the time travel paradox thing doesn't entirely work in the sense that. The the rationale for going for going into the past and um, destroying the fusion bomb and uh, taking Babylon four into the past is that if they don't do this, the shadows will come out of the ne- the last war stronger and uh, will move more quickly, and Babylon five will be defeated much earlier in the current shadow war, and. Y- as uh, as Marcus says, uh, accuses Sinclair of you know you've got us moving so fast you haven't given us a chance to think about it. This episode moves so fast it does it, you it doesn't give you the chance to think about well if the shadows actually won the previous shadow war I think our entire universe in Babylon Five would be very different than the one that we're in now um, if it'd been a- oh see. It was interesting because the way that I the way that I read it was that that if they didn't take Babylon four all the way back, this was actually telling us no, the shadows still wouldn't win. Like you know, the the Vorlons and then the side of light would still come out on top, but it would just be like a squeaking through kind of victory, and we would still end up at at the place that we are now. So I think it, to me, it's just sort of made all of the uh, all of the yammering about we have to have this station or everything is lost. Just it nerfed that just a little bit. Uh, I mean, Delin says that uh, we needed the spa- we needed the um, space station to win the war, and that it, without it, then we risk losing the war or just or it just being a stalemate. So yeah. no, I, I totally see where you're coming from there, Chip. 
but there is a tiny, tiny flaw. What's what's the tiny flaw? Fundamental error in quantum mechanics here. Okay. <laughs> because you're assuming, you're assuming, which is, is legit because this is how it works generally, that the effect comes after the cause, which, except in quantum mechanics, cause, uh, the effect can precede the cause. So what we're getting here is that these people came back, they went back in time and brought Babylon 5 before they went back in time to grab Babylon 5. So we have that already happening before they've, they've set out or saying it's just come into being as part of the thing that holds the fabric of the universe and its weird and confusing nature together. That's what happened. Whoa. Makes perfect sense. <laughs> it does. It totally makes sense. All that's happened is, is the thing that the result has preceded the cause. I feel like I've had a mind-opening experience here. It's in a Star Trek Voyager episode. There's a paradox in a Star Trek Voyager episode. It's in, the like, ver- it's in the very second episode of Star Trek Voyager, which I yes. happened to watch a week ago. And I was like, wow, this sounds really familiar. Where, where have I heard this b- before? Yes, I know. And I don't it even was, like Voyager. It was also that episode that first got me to read about quantum mechanics because I was like, hang on a second that's that's strange and yet brilliant i love that and then it was like when you when you get down like with the double slush experiment it's like oh, how do the particles know you're watching but they do so if, if you want to talk about an, an actual sort of flaw in, in the logic of it for me it was so so they Drawl opens up the time portal they're able to go back to what is it six years ago to babylon four then something goes wrong and they accidentally shoot forward four years. So they're at the place where Babylon squared, all that happened. And then from there, uh, Sinclair and Zathras take the station back a thousand years. And from there, there's still two years in the past. How does the White Star get back to present day Babylon 5? That is Magic. my question. <laughs> it it flew back through the hole. But well, why is there a hole there? They've actually traveled in time. Is that still there? Like, why would that hole be? Apparently, I mean, that's what went, the great they, machine can do. Zathras has studied went, it. They went. <laughs> they went through it. Uh, you know, the, the other ships just went through it, um, like only an hour or two previous to that, and they ended up in Babylon Squared timeline. Why didn't the White Star? Oh, and now I, you're making me think about draw. the time paradox foul up mm-hmm. in the Star Trek: The Next Generation uh, fe- series <laughs> finale. So, I, where the time, it's where the draw. time window, it's drawl. His yeah. Deus Ex Machina. <laughs> it's drawl. <laughs> Everybody, sure. let's just agree. It's drawl. Okay. It's drawl. Okay. <laughs> but I, I, sh- I feel like this might be a good time for me to bring up the one problem that Stephen had with it, which was not a logic problem. It was actually surprisingly enough, it was a direction problem. Um, <gasps> yeah. Um, <laughs> And that was because, and this is something that I kind of agree with because I had trouble with it too. So you have the mysterious figure in the spacesuit that we saw in Babylon Squared. And now we discover that it's actually a Delenn who has taken Sheridan's place in the spacesuit. And I agree with him. So when you find out it's Delenn, she talks to Zathras. Zathras says, I knew you wouldn't leave me. Uh, then we cut, and I don't remember if it's immediately or if it's just really, really close after. It, I think to- it's immediately. I think, yeah, so we get a crash cut from her in the spacesuit to her in her dress. She's not in the spacesuit anymore, talking to Sinclair. And Stephen was very confused by that. He thought that there were two Delens running around at that point. 
And I don't think that that was supposed to be the case. Uh, I think he was just disappointed that they didn't give some sort of uh, visual indication that time has passed that, you know, show her starting to take off the suit or something. He was completely baffled by that. Yeah, that should have mm-hmm. that should have happened more quickly. Um, yeah, and also no, the wardrobe never... thing always irritates me that that they, you know, what was the costume she was wearing in Babylon Squared that much different from what her wardrobe is now that they couldn't have? I don't know. Yeah, I mean, actually, it was the uh, so in Babylon Squared, uh, Sinclair looks uh, looks off. Old Sinclair looks off screen, says, "I I tried to warn them," um, and. Delin's arm comes into the frame, touches him, and says, uh, we need to get back to the others. And it's a sort of a pinkish, pinkish kind of sleeve. It's something that we never saw before and have never seen since. So it's a completely different it's a it's a completely different wardrobe. And frankly, that green dress of Delin's is killer. I would not have had her change clothes just to wear that sleeve for anything. <laughs> I do have headcanon yeah, yeah. for that. Okay, go for it. My 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 head, my head is that the, the, there are a couple of little discrepancies, you know, like we see in the, the flash forward thing we saw um, Sinclair on the station as well, and Garibaldi's hair was still long, and just you know little co- almost cosmetic things, and I'm like, ah, so the future has changed, <laughs> and those are those are sort of little ripples of time dust thing. See, and I'm like, yeah, that's that. I can buy that head cannon. That'll do. That'll work for me. <laughs> You're perfect. Nice story. Really, the really the only uh, the only blatant contradiction uh, between Babylon Squared and uh, War Without End is uh, Zathras being captured. Where, uh, as JMS wrote, you know, he he had to cut two or three pages of script, and the the way they described Zathras appearing in a flash um, in Babylon Squared, they just couldn't. They they just didn't have time to make it work, so that mm-hmm. bit of continuity was cut in the sake of expediency. That's fine. I, I didn't even notice cared. actually. Yeah, nobody cared except for <laughs> except for people writing um, treatises on uh, the Lurker's Guide. Hi, Jason Snell. <laughs> <laughs> oh. So uh, we have been going for a long time, and we haven't even gone into spoiler space. Of course, this is a two-part episode. You would expect us to be chatty. But I think we need to start wrapping up the uh, pre-spoiler section. Uh, So have we got any final spoiler-free thoughts about War Without End, parts one and two? So I I do have one thing, uh, mainly because uh, there's been a ton of chatter about it in the discussion threads on our website about the master list order, where what we've done is put Walkabout in front of this two-parter. Originally, it wound up airing afterwards. Our argument was that Walkabout should come after interludes and examinations. Um, The new new Vorlon ambassador shows up. Steven's uh, arc in leaving med lab and going to try and get himself off the stems and balance himself again, uh, coming on the heels of the previous events works very well. But a lot of people pointed out that uh, apparently the Vorlon on Minbar is supposed to be the new Vorlon ambassador. Um, I guess so. I I don't buy that. I don't, I need to take a look. look. I don't remember if the encounter suit is exactly right or not, but it doesn't matter to me so much. I mean, why, why couldn't, you know, Mr. New Vorlon, you know, go be mad at Lita and, um, you know, she tells him that, you know, she thinks she knows that there's a piece of kosh somewhere. Maybe New Vorlon decides, let's go check on Mimbar. Let's go look around and see if we can find it. 
I was fine with it. I don't see that that's as huge a problem. And, I didn't even and, buy that it had to be the same Vorlon. No, because and, what do we know right. from Vorlons? And and the and, and, and our final shot when uh, Valen, who really knows how to make an entrance, is flanked <laughs> by two Vorlons. The two Vorlons have the exact same encounter suits. Mm-hmm. So twinsies. Uh, so yeah, uh, twinsies, and uh, that means that uh, for all we know, Kosh was a really snappy dresser. And the other Vorlons hated him because he was too individual and all the other Vorlons <laughs> had the same suit. Hear, <laughs> hear. <clears throat> I'll take that. I would, I, I would like to give a couple of just quick shout outs in terms of performances. Because we, we talked about Michael O'Hare a lot, but um, Delenn, I think she was fantastic, whether whether it's it's just her feelings about Sheridan sort of coming over on her face and the fact that she takes takes over the, the, the time hopping from him, or if it's the scene that we see in what we assume is her future when she drops the snow globe because she's really upset by somebody telling her hello, or actually the moment that really did it for me was when she says goodbye to Sinclair mm-hmm. and, you know, does the thing where she puts one hand on her heart and puts her her fist out like i i knew i was going to be emotionally affected by it but it was even stronger than i thought because i got i got those crazy goosebumps that start up on your arms and run all the way down Mm -hmm. your body down your legs it was just like my whole body was just this is this is a moment capital m moment and and i thought that was that was amazing and um the other one is peter jurisic as londo in the future because he is just oh yeah especially the the point where he's put his his keeper thing to sleep with a drink and you can actually see how he feels the depth of emotion in his eyes and the fact that he's almost crying he still cares so deeply for his people and he just wants them to be saved and that 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 cut to the heart of me mm-hmm. oh yeah Dylan Dylan has some quite flashy moments earlier on in this season but she's um Mirafulun's Mira absolutely fabulous here I love I love the the goodbye the same as that. The whole the, the whole goodbye thing, the one where they shake hands, Sheridan and Sinclair, and then they make have the Minbari goodbye. It's just oh mm-hmm. it's such a beautiful final satisfying gestures and scene and it feels good. I love watching it. And then she had that marvellous moment right at the start where she's the one with more of the knowledge and introducing basically, no, not quite. We're the ones who steal it. And it's like Wow, that's yep. so cool. And just that the way the way that she just quietly commands a room like that. I really appreciate when we get seeing that for a character. Um, my final thoughts, I have two very small final thoughts. One of them is I've got I love the way that Babylon 5 handles time travel because um I mean Doctor Who obviously is used as, as as a plot device mostly. And in Star Trek, they're like, oh, we don't understand time travel, yet we do it semi-regularly and quite well and for laughs quite a lot. Um, but Babylon 5, it's so scary and it's so out of their depth and you feel that these are people are on the very cusp of their understanding and ability to cope with the situation, just pushing to try and somehow get through it. And if they actually stop to think about it too much, they're going to freak out because they're going to realise there's no cliff below their feet. They've been flying because they haven't because they're just like, ah, and I, I love that feel of it. It raises the stakes in a way that I don't feel that time travel generally does in most science fiction. Um, and the other thing was, I absolutely love that we have this letter that is from 900 years ago in a box that's been sealed. And because it's 
sticks and with the Minbari and the sort of culture we've built up with Minbari and how they are and how they feel about rules and mysticism and all that stuff there. When they say, we've had this for 900 letters and it's said to deliver it then, you can actually believe it. It's not like, <laughs> well, of course the post office is going to have peaked at this mysterious letter that's been there for 100 years. I don't believe you, Back to the Future. It's it's yeah. something that that really rings true, that this is something the Mimbari would totally follow through. They're not they're not looking at any secret relics before they said the time is correct for looking at those secret relics. And I love that because that's that's something that is, you know, in, in, because of the universe that, that JMS has created here in the society. That's really nice. Nice mm-hmm. world building stuff. My final thought is that science fiction and prophecy are always an awkward fit. But isn't it genius that every Minbari prophecy came up because Jeffrey Sinclair was there? (laughs) (laughs) Prophecy as prophecy as history. Mm. Mm Mm-hmm. That it, works. it works. It works. I should give you final thoughts from Stephen. Just two very little things. Um, he, uh, when we saw the min or the the Vorlon on Minbar, he said, "Yep, just as helpful on Minbar." So he was <laughs> just as impressed with uh, with their version of of Kosh. Uh, and uh, also, Stephen was had sort of a gasp when Garibaldi gets back to the station, and the first thing Zach does is tell him that Sinclair had been there without any, you know, he's not softening the blow at all, and he was just like, oh, <laughs> Zach, how could you do that? And then he just leans over oh. to me a little bit later, and he goes, Lou wouldn't have said anything. <laughs> yeah. Oh. Wow. Yep. Well, yep. it is it is time for us to go through a jump gate and uh, discuss spoilery stuff. Um, uh, fortunately, this time we have a spoiler cop with us. I'm just saying. McDonough, um, <laughs> no. are you ready for this? <laughs> but before we I'm go doing... through that jump gate, uh, reminders that our discussion threads are at b5audioguide.com. Uh-huh. We are on Tumblr and Twitter at b5audioguide. And Liz, if people want to hear you talk about things other than Babylon 5, uh, where would you direct them? Uh, I would direct them towards Verity Podcast, where obviously you can also hear Erica talking. <laughs> um, I would direct you towards... <laughs> Sorry. I would direct you towards Reality Bomb, where they have a sketch with the spoiler cops in them if you want to hear my amazing acting abilities. <laughs> And um, I, I, there is a whole smattering of incomparable network connected podcasts that I've, I've been on now. I think, I think I just did a ninety minute one. We did in, uh, about no, sorry, I tell a lie. We did a two hour podcast about a ninety minute Star Wars trailer. Ninety second Star Wars trailer. Ninety second. Sorry, God, I don't, I don't know how time works. I'm confused. <laughs> I don't, I don't know why they want to talk about time travel. But yes, no. If you really want people hear people overanalyze a trailer and like Star Wars, both those things you need. I think I was on that one, too, perhaps. Yep. Oh, yes, of course you are. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Liz, thank you for joining us for the pre-spoiler section. It's time to talk spoilers. We're going through a jump gate now. Go away, Stephen. Oh, 
wow, there is there is an awful lot to talk about here. I'm I'm not sure how we're going to do it economically, but um, but there is so much. Uh, and the first thing that I want to do is uh, talk about a uh, hello and a snow globe. Yeah. Oh, you guys, I made a mistake. Um, so Stephen has he we like to watch with the uh, with the subtitles on because now that we've gotten into oh, later no. seasons, the oh, subtitles. They had her name. <laughs> no, oh there wasn't God. anything. Okay, I don't think it's as bad as you guys are thinking. Oh, okay, oh, okay. <laughs> um, so, so the uh, no, they, they did not have her name when she spoke. So it wasn't it wasn't that. It was just um, that. Uh, the way that Stephen always turns the subtitles on is to actually go through the menu to the language screen and turn on the subtitles. Well, you know what there's a picture of on the language screen on this disc? It is a picture of Bruce Boxleitner and his real-life wife. Why? So, <laughs> like, so Stephen goes to this and he's like, oh, I don't know who that is. Who is? Never mind. I don't want to know who that is. And I was just like, look away. <laughs> Why would they do that? Who designed that? Uh, it's 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 very frustrating. So anyway, I, I you know he's. I, I don't think that just seeing her is is terribly spoilery, and I really don't think that he put it together that she's the person who because he actually thought that the the person in the doorway who said hi there was a young girl or a young boy because her voice is so so high. So he mm-hmm. he. I think he will mm-hmm. still be unspoiled when it comes to that particular revelation, but I was really disappointed with the uh, DVD people uh, yesterday. Well, to be fair, we've had lots of reason to be disappointed with the DVD people. <laughs> True. <laughs> and 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 we're we're doing our best to help people discover Babylon 5 for the first time, but for the most part, Unless we've been really, really good at marketing this show on behalf of Warner Brothers, the most most people who bought the DVDs in the first yeah. place were were fans Fully who aware already knew yeah. it. that Melissa Gilbert was going to show up. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in, in a in a case of markedly improved casting, I must say, indeed. Um, uh, but yeah, uh, that's that's one of the mysteries that we just that we have uh, unfolding in a very very few episodes. Um, the Centauri Prime stuff is uh, it, it's kind of amazing. Oh, but before we get oh, onto that, pointing out that sometime in the not too distant future, it appears that Delenn is living with Sheridan or at least sleeping with him. You know, because it's nighttime. He's in bed. She's in her robe. So, well, those of part- us who ship them, something's coming. Well, this is part of that, like the three yeah. nights of uh, watching right. and sleep and that right. stuff. Yep. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, you can obviously this is the episode that um, we've we've said this a couple of times, but it is obvious from space. You can see it from space that it is a romantic relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, that they love each other. They have a kid in the future. You know. Uh, unless history changes, that that is that is the arc of that is the arc of their relationship, um, mm-hmm. and uh, so this episode is really important for for that. But uh, going to Centauri Prime, we will see Centauri Prime uh, sort of begin entering the state in which we find it in this episode uh, in uh, season five, as the Drock take their revenge, and we will see. Londo ultimately receive his keeper towards the end of season five. That's the part of that's that's the part of season five that I think uh, where the series finds itself again after uh, 
wandering in the lost in the woods of the telepaths. Um, <laughs> um, oh, oh, but um, but and uh, and the whole mystery about uh, you know David is safe, David is fine. What was going on with that? Um, is actually expanded upon um, in uh, the Centauri Prime novels that uh, Peter David wrote, um, and uh, we also see we also get a hint as to why uh, Sheridan and Delenn went to Centauri Prime um, when at at the end of the season uh, of season five when um, Londo, who has gotten his keeper presents them with an urn for David on his 16th birthday or whatever. And inside that urn is a keeper. Um, so all, all, all of that stuff is sort of, I don't know that JMS had that in mind when he wrote war without end, but a lot of stuff that we see in war without end, um, he, uh, he builds some signposts toward in later episodes. Mm hmm. Mm, I, I think the, my favourite element of that is, is easily the uh, the Londo and Jakar bits and the way that this is sort of functions as a tiny teaser, a te- ah, teaser, tiny teaser for uh, for for what is I I don't know generally what Babylon Five opinion is about bit season five, but but for me the the fall of Centauri Prime is the big episode of season five. That's its high point there. I think it's a marvellous piece of work. And this acting is a little teaser to that and it works as far as what I can remember, I haven't seen it for a while, but it works so well with it just hinting at the, the horrors yet to come for poor Londo yeah. and his planet. And uh, and being intriguing whilst when you actually watch the watch the Savon Star Town, it still hits you like a hammer in the gut. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean we, we get some we get some hints to it in the episode if you're just watching it for the first time, but you know, Jakar, it's uh, it's practically a mercy killing that he, mm-hmm. you know, trying to trying mm-hmm. to strangle Londo, and it plays that way if you're paying really really close attention. They are not literally at each other's throats until the keeper wakes up. Before that, Jakar seems a little sad. Mm-hmm. Um, Londo asks for this, and it is it, it nicely presages the fact that by the end of season four. Uh, by the end of season four, Londo and Jakar are going to be sitting back, having a having a casual, nice drink, uh, while uh, Jakar is watching uh, Sheridan and Delin canoodle with his artificial eye, uh, oh, and then yes. I, and then ba- and then all the way up to season five, just before Londo receives his keeper, Jakar forgives Londo. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and we get um, all that one of the very. The, the consistent wonderful things about season five is the Londo Jakar bickering like an old married couple. And oh, and it's such it's such I think those characters have such a great payoff. The payoff they deserve most thoroughly. Because that that death thing, wasn't that set up in the first season where Londo talks about the dream he had of Jakar yes. killing him? First, first episode, Midnight oh. on the Firing Line. Yeah, and of course we assume then, oh, it's, you know, they hate each other. And then that turned around completely. So Jakar isn't killing him because he hates him. He kills about him because he cares about him. That's just, oh, it's such a, it's one of the through lines through the series. I think it's possibly the through line for me that just that has the consistency and the quality and all the payoff you could want for those characters and their storyline and their relationship. 
Here, here. Yeah, I agree. And I think that's, I mean, it, in part, it's the wonderful performances we've seen from both actors all along and thus far. But I do think it is the arc that their friendship goes through that that is really what makes me hold them up as my probably two my two favorite characters from the series. Yeah, they start out hating each other, but occasionally uh, finding something to be on the same side of, such as uh, back when um, they're in the nightclub uh, watching Adira dance and uh, Londo and Jakar actually clink glasses to to women. Then it gets really, really dark between them and then redemption. Oh, by the way, we're only a few episodes away from the and the Rock cried out no hiding place. Another uh, key <laughs> moment in their relationship. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, goodness. Um, so, anything else we want to say spoilery about Centauri Prime and Londo and Veer and Jakar? Jakar has some eye missing. Jakar has some, yeah. Oh, I love that touch. I love it so much, and I can't wait for, for that to happen and for Steven to be like, oh, this is why he doesn't have an eye in this, for, you know, the future thing. Like, just all of that continuity just makes me warm and giggly inside. Yeah, I mean, Cartagia just flippantly says, pluck out his eye. Mm, that one. You know, mm-hmm. and wow, just wow. A uh, little note about Valen, um, who, you know, young Chip was sad, figured figured that he would not be seeing uh, Michael O'Hare again in any capacity, and this was correct. Uh, but young, but Valen actually shows up in the DC miniseries, uh, comics miniseries, in Valen's name, mm. wherein the crew find the remains of Babylon Four. It's a it's a it's a side story. Ooh, they they really find the remains. Cool. They find the remains of Babylon Four, and on the uh, on Babylon Four, they discover uh, sort of the last will and testament of Valen, uh, and accounts by accounts by a religious caste and a warrior caste Mimbari who each claim to have been Valen's most devoted servant, um, <laughs> and things like that. Um, now is a good time, actually, uh, if you have access to it, to read the novel To Dream in the City of Sorrows, written by JMS's wife at the time, Catherine Drennan, blessed by JMS as 100% canon. It is the story of what happened to Sinclair uh, from the end of season one to taking leadership of the Rangers, uh, butting heads with Narun uh, on Minbar. Um, being joined by Catherine Sakai, who joins, who who, jo- who follows him to Minbar and joins the Rangers, something happens. Um, it's also a bit of backstory on the relationship between uh, Sinclair and Marcus, which we didn't get to see only only bare hints of in this episode. So um, now that you've gotten through War Without End, um, is a great time if you know some if you know some folks who want to get deeper into the backstory. Um, it's a fairly safe time to read those stories without getting spoiled. And I mm. personally really, really like To Dream in the City of Sorrows. That is a really good novel. You make it sound quite tempting because I, I've, my, I've read the, the, the telepath stuff novels because that was the thing that got me into Babylon 5. But, um, but I haven't read any of the other tie-in media of any sort. because um, It doesn't have the greatest of reputations, but if you're recommending it, it doesn't. Uh, generally speaking, the Babylon 5 tie-in media, there are only two worthwhile uh, novels in the original run of the series, um, and the only two that JMS considered either 90% or 100% canon. It's mm. 
It's that one, and I forget the name of it, but it is the uh, story of the Icarus um, and uh, and what happened with Anna Sheridan and Morden. Um, and uh, there's a side story going on in that novel about uh, Sheridan on the Agamemnon. And he does indeed forget to tell Anna that he loves her at the, in his last message and you know stuff like that. But those are the only two books in the original series that are regarded positively. Uh, there were sets of trilogy novels uh, that came out after the after the series ran that include Peter include Peter David's uh, uh, Centauri Prime trilogy, the uh, Telepath trilogy that you mentioned by I think J. Gregory Keyes. I yeah. think he's the author. Um, and, uh, and those actually do a pretty good job as well of, uh, filtering, uh, and a little bit of history from crusade without, um, without going into the territory that that, uh, lamented series, uh, would have actually done. So you see characters like Galen, the Technomage, um, and things like that in, in different spots. So, uh, so that digression is uh, that that digression is sort of your extra credit assignments if you want to read that stuff. <laughs> I like it. Mm. I have babbled. Uh, other spoilery thoughts. Zahadum. Oh yeah. Don't go to Zahadum. <laughs> so of course he goes to Zahadum to try to save Centauri Prime and therefore makes it happen. Yeah, and that actually goes back to when Erica was talking about how uh, Babylon 5 doesn't do much in the way of cliffhangers. That was the one exception I could think of, Mm -hmm. is the end of season three. Sheridan jumps off a cliff, and we're left, waiting for the next season. Yeah, and I think I think that was also that that's also a valuable lesson on what to do when confronted with the paradox. Because doesn't he go partly because um, he's like, oh, but what if not going is what causes all the terrible things to happen? Because I've yeah, they, they second guess themselves. Like, no, yeah. no, and of course you listen to future self people. Yeah, but I'm of course to... part of it is you know he's also I, if I remember correctly he's also arguing with Delenn um, because he. You know, this is his wife. This is Anna. He wants to go and figure out what's going on. He wants to, you know, give her um, the full chance of telling him what happened to her in the interim between uh, the Icarus supposedly crashing with all on board dead and her turning up on Babylon 5 years later. Uh, So, yeah, I I think, as you said, Sheridan was always going to go to Zahadum. I don't think that anything that future Delenn could have said would have convinced him otherwise. Any other spoilery thoughts before I go into a direction which is not quite spoilery, but I think <laughs> I, I want to – well, I'll, I'll explain later, but any final spoiler <laughs> thoughts? My other thought was one, and I didn't know if I should mention it before the, the jump gate or after, was just uh, talking about Londo and, and prophecy again, because the, uh, the, the lady who said that he had X number of chances for redemption, he does mention that this is his last chance for redemption right. for his people, for his planet, for himself, you know, his, his own soul. So this, I don't know which of these that falls under, saving the man who is already dead, probably, uh, but he does actually then let let Sheridan and Delenn go and I thought that was uh, just another nice callback to yet more continuity from way back when. Yeah. Some Something that jumped out at me real quick uh, was Londo's uh, statement, welcome back from the abyss which immediately yeah. once again made me think of Zaha Doom and Sheridan's experience with Lorien. 
My 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 final thing, which I forgot to mention before the spoiler horn thing, um, was I was very happy watching it this time to spot what uh, a type of paradox that has has came up recently in last season of Doctor Who, the bootstrap paradox. Yes. Um, we're here. We have it with Valen's name because. Who came up with Valen's name? Because Valen only got it because he knew from the past that he had called himself Valen. But that's it just goes round in circles. No one invented the name Valen. It's just always been there. No one thought it up. Because he yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. But the same thing with, you know, kind of the entire Minbari religion. Like it yeah. just exists. Mm-hmm. Yes. The and entire I, I really, Minbari religion sorry. is a creation of a human. Yes, and and their whole social structure as well. The three castes. I don't know if it was three castes, but the Grey Council. Then, they're, they're yeah, he body. set up the Grey Council. Yeah, mm-hmm. that and that that's terrifying and thingy. That's the that that I really hope actually, that the letters that he sends, puts in their relics and sends to the future, that he just keeps those letters with him and uses the ones that he got. So they also just yes. sprang into being. No one ever wrote them because I just ooh, I like that. Yeah. That was one thing. It it would have fit before spoiler space. Um, the one thing that actually I remember annoying me this time around was as Sinclair is setting up uh, the Triluminary so that he can go through and he's sort of flashing back. I understand JMS's point of doing so to show that to, to try and, as you said, chips spackle, you know, cover those seams. Um, but showing how supposedly this was always Sinclair's destiny um, that uh, mentioning points of conversation between the Mimbari, you talk like a Mimbari, things like that. I don't know that we needed the Soul Hunter bit, but, you know, seeing him, you know, they're using you and then, you know, Delenn, we were right about you. I don't know that we needed that much of it. Like that felt like a couple beats too long. Well, this sounds like an opening for me to jump into a alternate timeline. Uh, (laughs) And this alternate timeline is... What would Babylon 5 have been like if Sinclair had stayed on the show? Uh, 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 several years ago, JMS and uh, B5Books.com um, sold uh, a complete run of the scripts for Babylon 5. And if you bought all 15 script books, you got a 16th book, which had heretofore unseen, apocryphal, early drafts, uh, things like that. And the very last section of the book is the original five-year arc. Scans or the documents themselves are not available on the web anywhere. However, there are several people who have paraphrased it, which I, which, which is fair game, which is fair game. Um, so if you ever, if you want to find out more about what the original arc for Babylon 5 would have been uh, when JMS had his moment of revelation in the shower and said he saw it mostly fully formed, Google the phrase, in quotes, Babylon Prime, and secrets will be revealed to you. And some of these secrets relate very specifically to the story of Babylon 4. It may not surprise you at all to know that the destiny of Sinclair and the destiny of Babylon 4 changed significantly once Michael O'Hare left the show. Shall I go on? I'm curious. Okay. Please do. As they allude to in the episode, we always assumed that Babylon 4 was being pulled into the future. That's exactly what would have happened. The original five-year arc of the show 
would have been a slower arc. And the uh, Shadow War would have continued all the way through all five years of Babylon 5, culminating in the destruction of Babylon 5. Episode 22, Season 5, Babylon 5 blows up, much as we see it in, Sh- in Sinclair's uh, in prof- prophecy. And then the war is lost. Oh no, that's terrible! Followed by a spinoff series, should the series prove successful, called Babylon Prime, in which Sinclair, Delin, their child, and a few other people who are on the run after the destruction of Babylon 5, steal Babylon 4. <laughs> and and use it to continue the war against the shadows. Wow. That's sort of cool. Babylon 4 as you see and as you see in both episodes. Um Babylon 4 has counter-rotating sections and the reason it has that is Babylon 4 has engines. And Babylon 4 can be moved. And mm. that is uh and that is that is the story of Babylon 4. That is also the story of Sinclair, who would have been the only figure in the blue suit. And who, yeah. would, have tr- and who would have tried to warn everybody about the disaster, that, the, the war that was to come. So, gotcha. so, uh, so bringing it all back to War Without End, Michael, watch your back. I tried to warn them, but it all happened exactly as I saw it. Those seams look a little broader up at the moment, don't they? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. And the prof- and the prophecy, uh, there is nothing in the original series timeline, as, as has been paraphrased on the net, talking about Valen. There are references to prophecies that Sinclair was foretold as being able to save them in memory or something like that. It's too much to get into, and I don't have all the details, but let's bring it back to War Without End. Talk about a Herculean effort. So many things had been set up in the first season that, with Michael O'Hara departing the series, could not happen in the same way. So War Without End was a very difficult writing job, not only to get, get everything crammed into two episodes, but to fundamentally change certain aspects of Babylon 5, the series itself. Indeed. Mm-hmm. So, any thoughts about that that sort of monologuing, and does it change your opinion? I, mean, I don't think it changes anything about the quality of the episode. And from what I've read about the original series timeline to what we actually got, in just about every way, it's an improvement. We didn't... The, the Shadow War ends in mid-season four. JMS's original arc, he would have created a whole new spin-off series to resolve the Shadow War. Yeah, um, and then instead of getting a satisfying conclusion of any sort, it would be cancelled after one year, and they'd be forever at war, and it would have been terrible. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, so, uh, so War Without End strikes me as a really, really remarkable effort, and such a good episode, and it's, and it's, a, it's sort of a, of a fix job. <laughs> Mm-hmm. This that, is why God invented editing. <laughs> <laughs> it does amazingly well for everything it had to do. It it almost covered it all. Mm-hmm. I mean, really, yeah. for somebody coming in, coming in new and cold, I think it did everything just fine. 
you know, yeah. the only problem Stephen had with it was a directorial one, which had nothing to do with, you know, with JMS's mm-hmm. writing, really. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I sometimes feel like the fact that, you know, you are under pressure, you have got to correct for these problems, you've got to figure stuff out, that that's going to produce, I mean, it's necessarily produce something better, but pressure helps. A lot of writers get things mm-hmm. quality notched mm-hmm. up. And, um, and I, I feel like, I don't really feel like the, the criticisms that I can come up with for War Without Entry, they're, they're such minor petty things. You know, it's really having to dig deep. It's an immensely satisfying piece of television. It, it is. is. That is just the perfect word for it, is satisfying. Mm-hmm. I felt so sated coming out of this. I was like, yeah, that is why, I, that is what I want television to be. Thank you, Babylon 5. Mm. And it holds Agreed. up, and it holds up despite the fact that I think fans have a tendency to fetishize sort of original canon, you know mm-hmm. how, how the how the show how the show was meant to be. And, and there's oh, that's so silly because when you think of any of the great like think about just in books like the great novels that you love like would you really want to go back and read the first drafts of those? No, yes. you would not. It's so I mean, exciting as it. As a fanthropology sort of experiment, yes. But if it meant not getting the final version of that book, oh, how oh, sad would right. that be? No, no, because um, in there, oh, I shouldn't say anything too terrible, because but um, Frank Herbert is is my favorite author, and uh, they they did release the uh, his son and his continuing quest to mine Dune until it's a massive radioactive wreck. Um, did did release the original thing that Frank Herbert wrote that is um, wow. not very good <laughs> and <laughs> completely different compared to the final uh, immense flawed but magnificent in many ways novel and it's and yeah you're right it is interest it, it's extremely interesting if you're a fan of the product but generally speaking no one wants to see the insides of the sausage <laughs> unless they're making them yeah or unless they want to make their own sausages or they really love the sausage. Which I just want to eat cool. the sausage. Yeah, most people just want the delicious sizzling sausage, which that's fine. That's cool. And yet again, a podcast makes me hungry. <laughs> I just realized I forgot to eat breakfast. Mm. <laughs> well, you know what we did? You know what we didn't do before the jump gate? We didn't tell people what to watch next time. Or it was possibly suppression on my part. Because the next episode of Babylon 5 is Gray 17 is missing. Yay! What? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I watched it after reading about how terrible it was and being told it's terrible, it's worst episode of B75 ever. And it turns out, eh, it's just like a bad Star Trek episode. I love those. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Liz, may your... Okay, I need to keep that in mind when we watch. Yeah, may your optimism be... um, May your optimism be rewarded because I can't think of a worse come down from war without end myself. But <laughs> see, that's what you get for changing the episode order. That's true. She's got a point. Hmm. Maybe. But either way, you've still got to deal with it. Mm-hmm. We've still got to deal with the Zarg. <laughs> oh, it's not. It's not on my top five. Top five worst Babylon Five episodes. Grey Seventeen isn't in it. Wow. That's how much I love it. <laughs> wow. Wow. Liz, uh, Liz, you are unique. 
<laughs> well, it isn't my top ten worst. It doesn't make it to the top five. So that'll be next time. Liz, it has been a pleasure having you on uh, talking about the other half of Babylon Squared. Thank you so much. I'm afraid we back. need to return you to your time proper time zone now, though. Oh, no. Of course, there's n- <laughs> the only way that we can do it is just by saying draw, because we don't have an actual explanation. Of how it works. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so uh, thank you all for listening to us ramble on about War Without End, parts one and two. We will see you next time for Gray 17 is Missing. God save us all. This is Chip in Durham. Erica in Edmonton. And Shannon in Durham. And you have been listening and listening and listening to the audio guide to Babylon 5. 